My wife and I moved here about five years ago, and that in and of itself was a whole process because my wife uh, does not hold American citizenship. And, uh, and so if you are a transplant yourself, especially if you are uh, not an American citizen, you know that that can be a real pain in the neck. And, uh, and so she applied for her, what's called an I-130 visa, so that she could, because she was married to me, she was allowed to apply for that and she could come. And, uh, and she was pregnant with our first the whole year, so she was back and forth for a while. But eventually she got here, and then she applied for a green card, which is a, a legal resident uh, alien card. And my dad, who also held one, always used to joke that he was from Mars because it's a green card. <laughs> and I used to laugh as a kid, and it was, it was funny. Anyway, so she, uh, she applied for that, and, and after she'd been here for a couple of years and she had her green card, she was allowed to apply for nationalization. And so she sent off the application packet, and, uh, and she, she got a, another bunch more, bunch more papers in return, and, and they scheduled an interview for her down at the Immigration Center in Newark. And uh, they also sent her uh, a couple of things to study, because she, she has to get her English tested, make sure she can speak the language, and, uh, which she does, and that's... Good, because otherwise we'd have a hard time communicating. <laughs> and, uh, and then they also had to, they wanted to test her. She had to learn all these facts about America, about the, the local representatives and congressmen and, and the history and presidents and how the government works. And I learned a lot as well while I was doing it because <laughs> I never studied any of that stuff. And uh, for various reasons, you can ask me about it later. And, uh, and so we'd sit in bed at night like an old married couple, and I'd quiz her, and she'd get the answers, and I'd ask her the next one, and we'd go on. And she went down there eventually and passed the test, and they ushered her down to the ceremony room. They have a little stage, and they said some nice things, and there was a video from President Trump, and, and they got sworn in. She had to swore fealty and allegiance and not to ever fight against America and whatnot. And so she was a citizen, and it was great. We were happy. That was probably a couple weeks ago. And then a couple of weeks ago, we decided we were going to go on our first, she was going to go out of the country on our holiday, on our vacation, for the first time on her U.S. passport. So she had to apply for that, got her passport, and we went to the far-off exotic country of Canada. <laughs> and that was really nice. But all of that, we've been in that for the last five years, and all of that has had me thinking on and off about this idea of citizenship and boundaries and borders. And, you know, you, you guys who come back from Guatemala, you, you've seen it. You walk up, and there's the passport control, and there's a big thing above it that says, U.S. border. And they want to see your passport, and they're a little bit picky about who they let in sometimes. We know that. And so, this idea of citizenship, this idea of borders, of countries... For us, when we think about that, when we think about a kingdom, oftentimes we think about those kind of things. We think about borders and governments and people and nationalities and cultures and armies and that kind of thing. But we really have to ask before we can pray, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done, what does he mean by kingdom? What are we talking about? And so as we're in this series, pray this way, that's what I want to talk about this morning. And so Steve Three or four weeks ago, he started off and he talked to us about our Father, right? The whole prayer is based on this new relationship that we have with God as our Father. He's not someone we're trying to, to manipulate and to make sacrifices to so he'll do what we want. But he's not someone that we have to appease because he's out to get us either. We can come to him as a child, comes to a father and say, Father, and we can bring our requests to him. And he hears us. But then we also pray, hallowed be your name. Right? His name is representative of everything he is. And so, Father, let your name, everything you are, be recognized, be honored as holy. And so we get now, we follow on with, and now let your kingdom come. Let it be established. Let your will 
come, let it be accomplished on earth as it is in heaven. On earth the same way that it happens in heaven. Willingly, joyfully, freely. That's what we desire to see. And so, unfortunately, or fortunately for us, he talks about it a lot, but he doesn't define it. He says things like when he first starts his public ministry in Mark chapter 1 and verse 15, he says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's near, it's present. You could reach out and touch it. Eventually, he sends out his disciples to preach and proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. And he, he, he preaches a lot about it. He says, to what can the kingdom of God be compared? To a sower who sows seed in a field. To a buried treasure. To a mustard seed. And the reason he doesn't explain what he's talking about is because the Jewish audience would have already known. It's like if I stood up and said, let me tell you about America, but first let me define it for you. I don't need to define it because we all know, we all have a basic understanding of what America is, and so I can start talking about it without defining it for you. It was the same for the Jewish audience who Jesus was first speaking to. They already knew what the kingdom of God was. They had it, it was in their Bible, the Old Testament for us, that was, that was their Bible. And they had lots of verses, lots of a whole theology of there's a kingdom and it's coming. There's one we read at Christmas all the time from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, and it, here's what it says. It talks about that kingdom. It says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end, on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And so this idea of the throne of David and his kingdom, they had this, this knowledge, this sense, this expectation that one day a descendant of David was going to sit on the throne of Israel forever and ever, for eternity. And they were hoping for that. And in fact, because they were an occupied country, they were occupied by the Roman Empire, they had a very real present hope that the Messiah was going to come and kick the Romans out and restore the kingdom of Israel to, their, to its former glory. That's what the disciples were really asking Jesus about in Acts chapter 1, after he's been resurrected and he's come back and before he goes off to heaven, they say to him, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel now? Are you going to take it back? And he says, it's not for you to know the times and seasons that God has ordained. In other words, that's what adults, I mean, it's an English thing, I don't know. Adults would always do that to me as a kid. It means none of your business. Don't be nosy. Not yet. It's not for you to know yet. But they're hoping in this. This is, a, this is an ongoing hope they have. They're expecting it. And if we dig a little more into what Jesus says about the kingdom, it starts to get a little a little more vague because we suddenly realize that he's not actually talking about a literal physical kingdom. He says things like to, to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, he says, if anyone wants to enter the kingdom of God, he has to be born again by water and spirit. It makes you rub your head a little bit. And then he says to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. And so we can't just assume when we say, let your kingdom come, that we're praying, Lord, come establish a physical, real, literal kingdom right now. We're working for that. We can't assume that. So what is he talking about? And I want to suggest to you 
that when Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is at hand, what he's really saying is the king is present. The kingdom is not meant to reveal a people or boundaries or geopolitical area, but it's meant to reveal the king. The kingdom is near. The king is near. With you don't have a king, you don't have a kingdom. And so Jesus says, the kingdom is at hand. The kingdom is near. The kingdom is like this. And what he's saying is, the king is like this. The king reveals the kingdom. And so the kingdom is the place, is the sphere in which Jesus, the king, reigns. In which his rule is submitted, surrendered to. And so at the end of the day, to pray, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, is to pray for his kingdom to come at the expense of all other kingdoms for which we might work, that we might desire to see happen. There's also this sense, as you read through the New Testament and you read what the New Testament writers, even in the Old Testament, that one day it's going to be, there is actually going to be a fully established kingdom. That one day his kingdom is actually going to be here. We'll see it. That's what Romans 11, verse 15 says, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. One day he is going to be it really will be like heaven on earth as it is in heaven, completely, fully. And so as we pray this prayer, we pray in that tension. We pray in the tension of this hope we have in the future that Jesus is going to come back and he's going to reign, he's going to establish his kingdom. It's not, it's not a, oh, I hope the Mets are going to finish over 500 kind of hope. Sorry, John, that was an easy one. It's a false hope. It's a, I hope, maybe, I don't know, perhaps... No, it's a true hope. He's going to come. We know it's going to come. And we believe that and it affects how we pray today. But we also pray that, that the signs of his kingdom would be seen here and now. Because there are some of them. As the future bleeds into the present. And so it's a prayer that pray, pray, pray is, is prayed from that place of tension. And I want to talk about how to pray that in three spheres. Three areas of our lives. And they're not well-defined. I call them spheres, but they overlap. They, they're, they're all integrated at the end of the day. And you're going to see why in a minute. But the first place that we pray this prayer, and it really is a prayer of surrender, Lord, let your kingdom come, let your will be done in my life. Lord, I'm going to push, put aside and the pursuing any other kingdoms, my kingdom, right? John has talked about that. We're all busy building our own kingdoms. And you start to pray, Lord, let your kingdom come. You start to get two kingdoms that come up against each other. And when you have two kingdoms that start butting heads, you get a war. And when you get a war, you get death. And so the first part of praying this prayer in your own life is a, is a painful prayer. Colossians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul writes, and he has two big commands that kind of relate to that, how we should pray that. He says, put to death... Verse 5, put to death what is earthly in you. Slay, kill, exterminate, wipe out all of the sin, the dirt, the junk that stops his kingdom from coming. And that often those are the things that characterize what we, how we act to make our own kingdom come. It's a prayer. It's a very practical prayer, but it's a hard prayer. It's a prayer of, Lord, do whatever it takes. 
whatever it takes. Drastic steps. I'll do whatever I have to do to, to stop this affair, to, to, to get rid of my porn addiction, to, to stop watching this TV show over here, to, to stop the passive aggressive remarks to my wife when I'm, I'm on edge, to stop how I treat my kids when I'm tired. It's a prayer of, of Lord, I, I'm going to stop making these slightly unethical but really culturally acceptable business decisions over here, and I'm going to pay my workers fair way. I'm, I need to treat my workers right. I'll do whatever it takes to see your kingdom come. And so put to death what you have to put to death. But it's not only a negative thing. It's also a positive thing. If you skip down a few verses more, he says, verse 12, he says, Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, weakness, and patience. And so now that you've taken off the dirty stuff, put on the new stuff, like a clean garment. Put it on. And so my first question for you, my first challenge, as we pray this prayer together through the summer, is what do you need to put to death, or what do you need to put on? Probably not both at the same time, but sometimes we have to put something to death before we can put something new in its place. And so where is he putting, where is the Lord putting his finger on that thing in your life? Do you need to put to death pride? Do you need to put, uh, put to death your lust? Do you need to put to death your, your discontent? Or do you need to put something on? Put on contentment. Put on love. Put on patience. And that's a hard prayer. It's a painful prayer. I remember several years ago um, praying that prayer of put to death. Put these things to death. Put to death my pride, my selfishness. And he gave me a wife. And that took care of that. And then I started praying, well, he put some stuff to death. What could you put on? Help me put on patience, Lord. And, uh, and then he gave me children. <laughs> and that, that is it. It's being stretched there. And so I joke about that, but I'm serious about it too, because sometimes we pray these prayers, and he answers them in very natural ways. In the, in the ebb and flow of the seasons of our lives, you pray something, and he takes you into a new season, and all of a sudden that prayer is being answered because he's put you in a new situation. Don't be too quick to try and get out of your current circumstances. And so where do you need to pray that prayer today? Do you need to put something to death or put something on? And the second sphere where I think we should pray this is in the community of believers, right here, between ourselves. The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 to 10, he's speaking to the community of believers, and he says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. And so a kingdom, always at some, at some point in the discussion, you have to talk about the people of the kingdom. Who are the people of the kingdom? And the church is not the kingdom. We get into dangerous places if we go down that road. But the church is the community of the kingdom. Right? As we pray, your kingdom come in my life. And then as we gather together in community, and we start to try to treat each other as Jesus asked us and taught us to treat each other, we start to get a foretaste of the kingdom. And that happens in a couple of ways. The first way, and I'm not going to get into it, is through the gifts of the Spirit. The, gift, the Holy Spirit bestows gifts on every believer 
gifts of preaching and teaching and service, gifts of faith, gifts of healing, prophecy, for the building up of the church. That's what 1 Corinthians 12 talks about. And so as, we, as those gifts are deployed in our midst, we get a foretaste of the kingdom. But there's another way, really practical, that I want to I focus on this morning, and that is in the New Testament, there's a lot of one another commands, how we should treat one another. And they're mostly, they're, they're, in a first sense, they're directed at local churches, at us. And there's got a graphic of it up here. And there's a whole bunch of them. Offer hospitality to one another. Don't grumble against one another. Do good to one another. Be like-minded. Bear in love with one another. Serve one another. Love one another. And so sometimes we are not known for living these things out. Rather, we're known for backstabbing and biting each other and fighting. And so as we start to live these things out together... And we start to love one another and build one another up in the community of believers. We start to get a foretaste of what heaven will be like one day. Not all, not completely, but it starts to bleed through a little bit. And so let me give you two really practical ways to, pr- to start praying, Lord, let your kingdom come in the community, in the church this week. Because that's been the challenge is, hey, take this card. You guys got cards when you came in. Take this card and put it somewhere you're going to see it and pray these prayers. And so pray it for your own life, but pray it for the church. And here's two really practical ways. The first way is this. We have a new youth pastor coming in. You should pray for him. You should pray for him as they get settled, as they look for a place to live, that God would provide a place for them to live. You should pray for them as, as he and his wife, they're, they're newlyweds. Pray for their marriage. You should pray for him as he starts to, know, to, look, to meet students and their families. As he meets us, for better or for worse. Hopefully he likes us. You should pray for him. For the staff, for the church as we transition together. Here's the second way. Did you know, and I'm sure you do, because John talks about it all the time, there's an email prayer list, prayer letter that goes out every week. Some of you send, letter, send your prayer requests in on, on connection cards. Some of you pray for it. You should get that. If you're not going to pray for it, don't, don't request it. Don't sign up for it. But it's a really easy way to start praying for the church, praying for those who have said, I need prayer for this because I'm hurting or because I've got doubt or because I'm struggling through this situation. I have friends who, uh, dear friends of, 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 of mine who, who say, you know, I'd rather watch TV than pray. But I know it's important. And so every Sunday afternoon, Sunday evening, we sit at our kitchen table and we pray through stuff for other people. And there's, I, in my own life, if you want to walk alongside people, sometimes we're really bad at walking alongside people through their suffering. We could bring them a meal. We can give them stuff. We can give them money. But walking alongside them in compassion, sometimes that looks like praying for them. Sometimes that looks like, hey, how can I pray for you this week? And then the next week, keep coming back, coming back, coming back until something changes. It's hard. It's not an easy thing. And so put that into practice this week. If you're going, I don't know how to pray this prayer, there's two really easy things to do. Here's the third thing. We pray your kingdom come, your will be done through the church in the world. As the church is meant to proclaim and demonstrate the kingdom, 
The excellencies, that's what Peter said earlier in 2 Peter. Proclaim the excellencies of him who has transferred us from the kingdom of darkness to, the, to his marvelous light. Our job is to proclaim and demonstrate the kingdom. And so you can pray for that as well. But, you know, the church is not a building. We say that a lot. But the church isn't an institution. I mean, it's kind of an institution. But it's, it's, it's people. It's, it's you and me. And we have lives, right? We spend some time at church, but we spend a lot of other time, a lot more time at home and at school and at work and at baseball games and at the gym and at the supermarket. And so as we in our lives start to honor Christ, right? This is where the sphere one comes into sphere three. Start to honor and submit and surrender to Christ as Lord as we give him our allegiance we become agents of change in all of those areas. And when we see poverty, we address it. When we see doubt, we address it. When we see injustice, we address it. That's what happened with Guatemala. Somebody saw that there was a need, and we addressed it. And that's what Paul starts to, to elaborate, this idea of, of in every sphere of life, Jesus is your king. And he does that in Ephesians 5 and 6. It becomes really obvious because he says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. Every sphere of life. Paul sums it up really well. In Galatians 6, he says, So then, as we have opportunity, whenever the opportunity presents it, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are in the household of faith. Wherever we have the opportunity, in every area of your life, he's king, he's Lord, and you are saying, Lord, let your kingdom come, and all of a sudden the church becomes a force for change, and the church being us. But I want to talk about how we pursue change real quick because the way the church pursues change, pursues to see the kingdom come, we've got that wrong in the past. And we've divorced the spiritual from the physical and we get mixed up in politics and, and we start chopping off people's heads because they don't agree with our theology. And it gets messy. And so how do we pursue change? And again, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 10, he says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. The weapons that we use, to use the, the language of warfare, are not the ones of this world. We don't use rebellions and uprisings and wars to pursue change, but neither do we use shaming and, and peer pressure to pursue change. Those aren't God-honoring, those aren't the weapons of the kingdom either. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, he said, he summed it up really well, he said, the will of God to which the law gives expression is that men should defeat their enemies by loving them. We wage war with love. Because our king is love. And so as we take the love of the king to the world, that's how, that's how we pursue change. And so what does that look like, right? So there's two really easy, really obvious ways to pray this right now. The first is this. Pray for Guatemala. 
Now, I know we're not praying for people going, but you heard the testimonies. You go down there and you come back changed. And so you can pray for everyone who's returning because you don't know what seeds God is sowing in their hearts. And so you could pray for what he's doing in those hearts. If you know someone who's been there, you should pray for them next, this next week. But you should pray for the people who are down there long-term working at Potter's House because we go down there for three weeks in the summer, but there's folks who are down there year-round who work with, those, with the treasures in the garbage dump. And so you should pray for them because they need strength. That's a hard, that's a hard way to serve. You should talk to Ellen afterwards and find out names. What are the names? Who, who works down there? It's, it's good to people, pray for people by name. The second way is this. You should pray for Grace House guests. Right? That's a local thing. Right? It's right here. It's in our own house. You should pray for the people who are serving there this week, that they would have gospel conversations, that they would have love and patience and be able to care for the folks who are coming in, that they would feel safe and cared for and loved. You should pray that maybe they'll come, some of them who need to hear what John has to say next week will come and to the service next week. You should pray for them. That was a lot, all in 20 minutes or so. My challenge for you is this, is this next week, right, as you have your card, pick one thing in each sphere, just one. Don't try and break the bank on the first go. Where is he calling you to, what is he calling you to put to death? What do you need to put on? Just one thing. What, how are you praying for the community of believers? And the stuff I threw out to you guys, that's, that's if you're going, I don't know how to, I don't know where to start. That's where you could start. And then how do you pray for the world, for the church as we demonstrate the kingdom to the world? Pray for Grace House guests. Pray for Guatemala. And this is a hard prayer. Because once again, it's a prayer of submission. And, and that's why, start simple. But it's a prayer of submission. It's a prayer of surrender. It's saying, Lord, your kingdom come in my life instead of my own kingdom. We're giving his allegiance. We're giving our allegiance to him. So as the band comes up, I want to share a quote from C.S. Lewis. And he said in uh, his book, The Four Loves, he said, we may give our human loves the unconditional allegiance which we owe only to God. Then they become gods. Then they become demons. Then they will destroy us and also destroy themselves. For natural loves that are allowed to become gods do not remain loves. They are still called so, but can in fact become complicated forms of hatred. We need to pray this prayer. We need to, to orient our lives as for the kingdom of God instead of for our own kingdom or some other kingdom. Because when we are for other things, for other kingdoms, we're building those other kingdoms, those things that we give our allegiance to, that unconditional allegiance, those things become demonic. They become a, a complicated form of hatred. Literally, it will be on earth as it is in hell instead of on earth as it is in heaven. And so let me urge you to commit to doing this, to praying this prayer this next week. If you're someone who's going, man, I really, I, I just don't know where to start with this whole allegiance to Jesus thing. Where do, how do I start turning my heart and my mind that way? Prayer has an incredible ability. As you start praying in a direction, 
it brings the rest of you with it. You start praying and you don't know, you don't feel it. You don't feel what you're praying for. You don't necessarily believe in it. But as you start praying in that direction, all of a sudden you find your heart and your mind start to follow. And then your actions follow. Or maybe it's the opposite. And so we need to pray that prayer this morning because Jesus is worthy of our allegiance and he's also better. He's better than anything else.